so have you ever noticed how everything that starts off new and beautiful and exciting eventually becomes old and worn out, problematic, and even boring? Ever, ever notice that? How you get that new laptop or that new phone or whatever device or that, that new car and it smells new and it's like, oh, I love this. But then what happens? Your kids get in the car. <laughs> and within like 36 hours, like it's not new anymore because they spill stuff or they eat in the car and all of a sudden like that which was new and beautiful and exciting all of a sudden in the not too distant future is not. Or even that relationship that started off and it was just like <gasps> exciting and you just couldn't stop thinking about that person. It was just like you were so in love and then you get married. <laughs> And then, you know, years later, you're like, yeah, I used to be so exciting. Now, I say that my marriage is so very exciting. Like, <laughs> actually, with all, not most, just aside, um, this Thursday, we're, we're celebrating 21 years of, of marriage. So, which, it's actually kind of cool because I'm 42, which means 21 years that I wasn't married and 21 years that I have now been married. And so I'm very grateful for that privilege. But if, if I told you that it was all easy, then I would be lying to you. It's been harder on Bonnie, I think, than it is on me, just because, I don't know, I'm a guy. And I think, I think women get the raw end of marriage sometimes. Um, that's, a, that, that, that's like a marriage sermon for a different day. Um, teach, yes, sister, that there no husbands and wives are both blessed in marriage. It is God's design. It's just different, and there's different challenges on whatever side of the aisle you're standing on there. But I digress. Things start off great and beautiful, and then yet the reality of being in a fallen world is things then degenerate. Our world is degenerating. Ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, everything that God made good from God's original design is now on a path towards decay and death. This world is cursed. And the human race is chasing is chasing after something new and shiny and beautiful that will satisfy, that will bring a sense of meaning and of real purpose. Have you ever stopped to wonder, well, why is that? Like, why is it that every human being, just hardwired into us, is deep desires? We all have cravings. We all want things. Well, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, we won't be in Hosea, just, just, just one verse. God says this, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Let me read that again, Hosea 6, 6. This is God says, I desire love and not sacrifice. Says God says, I desire knowledge of God, so knowing God rather than burnt offerings. And so God has made us as image bearers to reflect him, and God has desires, and he's made us to have desires. We want 
things. I mean, the whole premise of Buddhism, if you ever studied it, it's about minimizing your cravings, that there is suffering in the world, and the solution, according to the Buddhist worldview, is you have to learn by meditation to stop your cravings, stop your desires. If you would just stop wanting things and stop loving things and minimize your affections, then your suffering will also stop. This is the Buddhist worldview. It is horrifyingly wrong. Because we can't stop desiring things. We can't stop affections because God has made us in his image. And God desires, God has affections. And as his image bears, we can't help it. We can't. We're made to love. We're made to see that which is beautiful and to crave it and to want it. And sometimes we substitute empty religion, which is why God says that he wants love. He wants you to know him, not just burnt sacrifices and offerings. God doesn't want the empty religion. God doesn't want you coming on a Sunday just checking the box, quote, going to church. How can you go to church? Church is the people. You go to a worship gathering where the people of God are gathered together. So this whole notion of going to church is terribly wrong. It's just this idea of go and, and check the box. And God says, I don't want that. I don't want your religious activity. I want your heart. He wants our affections. He wants us to know him, which is what the whole points of this whole series this summer called The Core, this preaching series on our core beliefs that define who we are as God's people and, and that shape who we are is all about knowing who God is more deeply. It's not about more information. It's not about having theological learning. All that is helpful for as a means to the end. The end is actually, like it says in Hosea 6.6, 6, the knowledge of God, the knowing of God. So today we're going to be talking about our statement of faith, our statement on regeneration, what we believe about that biblical truth. So it's on the screen, and I'll read that to you. So on regeneration, we believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated or born again. Regeneration consists in God giving a holy disposition to the mind, and it is affected by the power of the Holy Spirit in a manner beyond our comprehension. This is in connection with divine truth so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel. Its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance, faith, and newness of life. And so this is what we believe about the power of God to regenerate. Let's look at a text in the book of Titus that we'll be in for the most of our time this morning. Titus 3 in verses 1 through 8. Let's read the first two verses. Titus 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. 
Now, this was written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote to Titus, who was one of his associates that Paul had trained Titus and also Timothy and, and other young men in Luke. And so he had, he had like an entourage. He had younger men that he was discipling and mentoring. Titus was one of them. And so Paul had discipled him and left him on the island of Crete to be the pastor, planted a church, and now Titus is leading it. And so Titus here is being called by Paul his mentor, it says, to teach the church in Crete how to live for Jesus in the middle of a very pagan, very evil Cretan culture. So he tells them to be obedient to God's word. He says, don't speak evil of others. Don't quarrel. Be gentle. Be ready for every good work. So this is what Paul is telling him. Teach these things to the church. But here's the key. This is not like a moral to-do list where you have to do all of these good deeds and check off all the items. This is not a list of duties or like religious obligations that you have to do in order to like earn points with God or somehow earn his approval or earn your salvation. It is not about earning Titus 3, as we'll see in a second, is describing the purpose of God in creating a new humanity with new hearts that have been regenerated. We live in a world that is degenerating, and yet the power of God is to regenerate his people to give them new hearts. Let's read about that, verses 3 and following. For we ourselves were, that's a key, were, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Father, as we gather here in your name, we want you to speak. Our thoughts and our opinions are of no value. We want to be submitted under the authority of your word. Your word that is inerrant and infallible, that is sufficient and clear and authoritative and necessary. We ask that you would speak and that through your spirit, that you would grip our hearts and that we would respond with love and with trust and obedience. And we ask it for your glory in your name, Jesus. Amen. 
Titus 3 describes four specific truths. And these truths reveal to us the heart of God so we can know God more deeply, but also reveal who we are so we can know ourselves better. So number one, what we see here is the reality. So number one is the reality. We see the absolute truth of what's going on in ourselves and in the world. So our world tells us, I'm okay and you're okay. You have your truth, I have my truth. And it's kind of like, maybe I like chunky monkey ice cream. And, and maybe, I don't know, you like something boring like vanilla. I don't know. But we both like ice cream. We just like different flavors. And so we have relegated absolute truth to no longer exist and to make it a preference. And so truth is preferential. Truth is subjective, and our world tells us that there is not just one truth. There is not absolute truth. It is a plurality of truths, and so we're told that humans are essentially good, that we're not that bad. We make some mistakes, but that we are not sinful, and that we don't need a savior, but the Bible tells us the truth, the reality of our human condition. The Bible tells us that we are evil. And the evil is not just out there. The evil is inside. It's in our hearts, in our souls, our mind, our body, our soul is completely tainted and corrupted and twisted by sin. So down to our core, we are sinful. We just read it in verse 3. He says, disobedient. He says, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, that means evil, and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is the reality of the human condition. The phrase for this in theology is known as total depravity. Depravity means evil. Total refers to complete or to whole. So the idea is that sin affects the whole person. So our, our body is affected by sin, which is why we have diseases and why we will eventually all die. So our body is affected by sin, but not just that. Our mind is also affected by sin. So we have evil thoughts think things that aren't always pure. Our very will is corrupted by sin. So we lack like the moral willpower to do what's right. I'm not saying that we're as evil as we could be. God is very gracious to us. But what I am saying is that our mind, our body, our soul, down to who we are, even our immaterial spiritual self, our heart is enslaved to sinful desires. So think of it this way. We are holistically corrupted. Mind, body, will, soul, all of us. The totality of who we are is affected by the fall. So we are enslaved, it says, to evil desires. It says slaves. That's the phrase. In bondage to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice. The human problem has, or the human condition, our problem is a passion 
problem. That's what we have. As human beings, we have a passion problem. We have a desires problem. We have a heart problem. And it's not just our behavior. It's much deeper. We have an enjoyment problem. We enjoy evil things. And we want to pretend like we don't, but we're posing. If we're honest, we all know that every one of us struggles with enjoying things that we know we ought not enjoy. So the reality is that we are totally depraved, holistically corrupted. The human race is hopeless. We don't want to treasure God or obey him. And we left to ourselves in our own power have no hope to change our hearts, to change our desires, to actually want to enjoy the presence of God. And some of you in the room can relate. Some of you in here are so frustrated that you have to be here. You wish that you weren't here. You ought to be in bed or anywhere else than sitting here in this room right now. You're bored. You're frustrated. Maybe, maybe even angry at me for what I'm saying right now. And you're like, I ain't never coming back to this church again. Well, I hope by the end of today that God will change your heart because that's what we need, a new heart, new desires. What we need, honestly, is a miracle because we can't change ourselves. That's the reality. Number two, the remedy. What do we see as the remedy? Well, verses four through seven describe the remedy for this reality of our sinful condition. But, oh, I love that word, but. Like it describes our struggle, disobedient, slaves to passions. It's describing our sinful condition. And then verse four says, but, beautiful. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done in us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By washing, with the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Just let that soak in. In the middle of our foolish, disobedient, led astray condition, says the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared and he saved us. We didn't add anything to this salvation. He saved us. According to his own mercy, that he poured out richly on us through Christ our Savior. Says we are justified, declared just before a holy God in this cosmic courtroom, declared just because of his grace. This is the gospel. And if you're a believer and you tell me, well, I don't know how to share the gospel. Really? Titus 3, 4 through 7. There you go. That's all you need. Open the Bible and read Titus 3, 
Verses 3, which describes our condition. And then 4 through 7 describes the gospel, describes who God is and what he has done for us. And so you don't need to be a theologian or go to seminary. You just need the Bible. Titus 3, 3 through 7, describes the stunning glory of the gospel. I would encourage you to read it and reread it, memorize it, use it, share it, proclaim it. It is so beautifully powerful and so brief. Like, I can't relate to that because I'm not usually brief. And yet, in a few lines, what God reveals is stunning. The wonder of our salvation, of our justification. And there are four specific statements that are really important for us to know what we believe about justification. That we are saved, justified by grace alone. We're justified by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. For the glory of God alone. This is how we're justified this is how we're saved, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Like it says in Acts 4, let it be known to all nations by the name of Jesus Christ, whom was crucified, whom was raised from the dead, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among Men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. There is no other way. The only way to be saved is through Jesus. Because this world is cursed and broken and condemned. And Jesus on the cross endured our curse. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The remedy is not try harder. The remedy is not go to church. The remedy is not be religious. The remedy is not be more moral or read more self-help books. The remedy is the mercy of God poured out richly on us through Christ Jesus, our Savior. We are justified by his grace. That is the remedy. The remedy is the gospel, the finished work of Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, was buried, resurrected, has conquered the grave, is alive today, gives his spirit, he breathes on us, he empowers us to go because we have been sent as the Father has sent him. The, the remedy is Jesus himself. So our reality is that left to ourselves, we are dead spiritually. And the remedy is Christ himself. Number three, the result. What is the result of this remedy? We see it in verses five through six. We've read it a couple of times, but it is worth reading. He saved us, not because of works done by us, not because of our good works, not because we can earn it. He says, but according to his own Mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So his, his mercy, Christ's work on the cross through the Holy Spirit then results in, it says, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So our our salvation is accomplished by Christ, and then it is applied through the work of the Spirit. It says he washes us from being unclean, so he makes us clean. He cleanses us, and then this spiritual washing is connected to regeneration and renewal, is what verse 5 says. Let's go a little bit deeper and look at those words. Regeneration in the original language, is Palin Henesia. It's not that complicated because you can figure this one out. Henesia is Henesis, Genesis. And so what does Genesis mean? It means origin. It means birth. And Palin is Greek for new. And so Palin Genesis, new origin, new birth. So that's what regeneration, so the word generations comes from. And, and so what you have is this idea from the Bible that we're regenerated. It means that we are having a new origin or a new birth. So that's what that word means. The word renewal is anakinosis. Ana means re, like reiterates. And so it's just a prefix for like do again. And then kenosis means to be born. So what you're talking about here with renewal is like being reborn, renewed. And so these two terms, regeneration and renewal, are very closely linked. It's describing this idea of being made new again. So that's what these terms mean which is why whenever we baptize believers, they wear T-shirts that says, made new. Because baptism is a picture that points to renewal of being made new again. So re regeneration refers to being reborn. Renewal means to this idea of this newness of life. They're both connected and neither is something that we do. Both are realities that we receive. You can't make yourself be born. Like that happened to you. You didn't choose your birth or how it happened or when or where. Like being born is something that God does. That happens to you. And so spiritually, same thing. God does this to you. And then he renews you. We receive regeneration and renewal. So what is the reality? That we're spiritually dead. By our nature, we don't love God. We don't want him. We're blind to the glory of Jesus. What is the remedy? His mercy, the work of Christ on the cross. What is the result? Regeneration and renewal. This is what happens to us. We're made new. This is a miracle. It's supernatural. Now, this was promised many centuries earlier. If you've ever heard me preach before, you know that I love showing how everything in the New Testament is based on the Old Testament. So please turn to Ezekiel 37. That chapter is so important. It was promised six centuries before the birth of Jesus. The prophet Ezekiel gets this vision. 
God's people are pictured as dead, under the curse, not even buried, just a huge valley filled with cadavers, with dry bones, been dead a long time. And in this vision, God tells him to prophesy, to preach the word, Ezekiel 37. Let's begin with verse one. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley it was full of bones. And he led me around them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and, and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain that they may live. So I prophesied, and as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord, when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O oh, my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land and then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. How do you comment? But what is any human supposed to say after you read that? The people of God are depicted as being dead under a curse, hopeless, helpless, dead. And the word is proclaimed. And then the breath of God, the spirit himself blows and enters into God's people and raises them from the dead. 
And then they declared that there is only one God in heaven that can resurrect the dead. And you will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and resurrect my people. The work of regeneration is a miracle. Do you think religion can do this? Do you think the work of man, do you think smoke and lights and cool buildings and programs and entertainment resurrects the dead? Really? Because last I checked, it is the spirit of God who does the impossible. And so it is not by might, it is not by power, by the spirit of God alone. And that's what we see with Ezekiel 37, what we're seeing today. People resurrected by the power of God. And you see it also with one chapter earlier. I won't read as much. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Also a promise. God promises, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. You hear that? You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God promising to clean his people, to wash them from their sin, to give them a new heart with new desires that will cause them, that will make them want to obey, walk with God, a new heart with new desires, a new want to. Remember the problem? We have a passion problem, an enjoyment problem. What does God do? He gives us a new heart that wants to, that desires him with the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see, other religions, Buddhism, Islam, pick one, Hinduism, you can choose, okay, I'm going to follow this religion, and you just kind of follow it. With following Jesus, not like that. Following Jesus, you don't just choose. I know that we sing, and it's good. I have decided to follow Jesus, and that's true. But the reason why you have decided and you want to follow Jesus is because he has loved you first. Every single time that you say, I love you, Jesus, understand he said it first, and you're saying, I love you too. Following Jesus is a miracle. It's regeneration. It's spiritual resurrection. Nobody, no one follows Jesus unless they have been resurrected. No one on their own free will would just love the crucified, bloody Messiah who's resurrected unless the Holy Spirit takes the initiative first. No one confesses Jesus as Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. It is the work of God. When you look around here at this gathering, 
what do you see? Like, look around for a second. Like, what do you see? Like, I see people. <sighs> this is a gathering of those that have been regenerated, that have been raised up spiritually. This right here is new, recreated humanity. That's what you're seeing in this gathering. The people of God that have been raised up from their spiritual graves. A recreated human race. 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim his excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What, you know what this is? This is a gathering of a new Race. It says we are a chosen race. There's only two human races. Only two. There's human race that's in Adam, and there's only one. And that human race is in sin. And there's a second human race that is in Christ, the new Adam, the final Adam, those that have been resurrected, a chosen race who are priests who are holy, who belong to God, who proclaim his excellencies. And so there are only two human races, those that are spiritually dead and those that are spiritually alive. So I'm Hispanic. I was raised in a home where we spoke Spanish. Some of you are black or white or different kinds of ethnic backgrounds and heritage. That makes no difference. Zero difference. We are one people. You're my people because you're part of God's people. And so we do not define ourselves by critical race theory, some other nonsense or bunk like that. We are defined by who we are in Christ. One people, one chosen race. That's who we are. One People, his chosen race. This creates unity in, in the people of God that you can't see anywhere else. We are defined by who we are in Christ. Those that have experienced this remarkable, miraculous regeneration were made new. So what is our reality? Human nature lets themselves, when well, we are dead in our sins. What is the remedy? The gospel itself, Jesus is the remedy. What is the result of his work on the cross? Regeneration, a miracle, new hearts, fully alive, that are not bored by Jesus, but that love him and desire him. Number four, what is the response? What is our response to what God has done? So verses four through seven here in Titus three describe how the spirit washes us and regenerates us and then gives us his renewal and then he justifies us. We saw that last week, on, on being justified. So what we're seeing here is that he washes, he regenerates, he renews, he justifies. So are you seeing a theme here? That God takes the initiative. He loved us first. He 
chose us. He graciously loved us when we did not deserve it. He always acts first. So after all of that, you get to verse 8, describing our response. Again, back in Titus 3. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So Paul tells Pastor Titus, insist, preach these things, insist on this in the church. He says, so that those who have believed, us believers, have believed in God, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. It says, those who have believed. So our response to God is to believe. Believe means to have faith or to trust. It's the same word in the original. So what you have faith in, you believe in, you are trusting in. So those three words are interchangeable. And so we see here, it's faith. We trust in God. We don't initiate. We receive. We respond with faith and repentance. So God loves us first, and then we respond with faith. Regeneration is not a synergy. It's not a cooperation. We will see in a couple of weeks sanctification that actually is a collaboration between us and the Holy Spirit. So I'll preach on that in two weeks. But regeneration is not the same as sanctification. Sanctification is us cooperating with the Holy Spirit to grow spiritually. Regeneration is where it all begins. We begin our faith journey with being regenerated. We then progress to sanctification, and it'll end with being glorified. So glorification. We'll talk about that more in a few weeks point here is that our faith in Christ begins with him regenerating us. We receive that. God acts first. John 1, 12 and 13 says, all who did receive him, who did believe in his name, were born not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born again of the will of God born from the will of God. And so regeneration is not synergistic, it's monergistic, it's mono, one. God works, he does this. And so re- re- regeneration is a miracle and God must do it. Even faith is a miracle that God gives to us. And so recognizing that God takes initiative and we respond with faith and repentance, what that does is it puts in the proper place of being humble and depending on God and not having earned anything, just simply receiving and surrender and awe and bow before him and depend on him. When you were dead in your sins, Spirit of God breathed life on you and your dead soul awakened from your grave, and your spiritual self breathed, gasped the spirit in for the first time, and then your eyes were opened, and you saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus, and you believed, and you loved him. And you said, I'm all in. I just want more of you, Jesus. We believe in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated or born again. 
Regeneration consists in God giving, here's the key, God giving a holy disposition, a holy desire to the mind. And it's affected by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is the one that gives us this new desire. And it's in a manner beyond our comprehension. So our statement of faith acknowledges that there's mystery here. There is total mystery, and it really is beyond our human comprehension. But this is in connection with divine truth. And here's what it does. It secures our voluntary obedience to the gospel. We freely choose. We have a voluntary free will choice that we respond to the gospel. And it's proper evidence of being regenerated and responding with faith and repentance is, it says, holy fruits of repentance, faith, and newness of life. Do you want holy fruit in your life? Do you want the holy fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Do you want to be a man or woman of God that exhibits these holy fruits? Well, it begins with God breathing his spirit into you and then you responding with faith and repentance and then begins the journey of following him, of feasting your soul on his word, of living in community, of walking in that spirit. And then he does produce. And so the evidence of regeneration is these holy fruits. And so when it says that we're careful to devote ourselves to good works in verse 8, we don't obey in order to be saved. We obey because we have been saved. The reality is that we are sinners. The remedy is the gospel. The result is regeneration, and our response is a life of faith and ongoing repentance. And for those who love Jesus, obedience is not burdensome. Obedience is a pleasure. We want to Because God never in his word, not one place in here, does he give us an instruction that is not good for us. If it's in here, it's good for us. And we need it. So we submit to it. We love him. We find joy in him and in his word. And so I'm praying as a faith family that we will be so overwhelmed by his presence that his spirit would just grip our souls with his majesty and that he would transform our hearts and that we won't be able to help ourselves. We'll just want to live on mission and want to obey and want to serve and want to trust him when it's hard and that we will have a want to spread his renewal to Bill County and the world because they need it.